Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Anagogi podcast. Uh, today we have Sean, and I've met Sean, uh, or rather, I've I've started uh, digging into his work when I saw a fairly random uh, YouTube video about uh, Fourier cognitive science. And this, as you may know, if you follow my podcast, I'm a fairly big fan of, of cognitive science. And then I I dug a little bit into his work. He he just seemed you know, very experienced uh, in the field. He has has done this for a very long time. Also like that he has a very strong philosophical background, uh, which is fairly common in cognitive science, unlike other branches of, of psychology and whatnot. Uh, and I was just really impressed, and I just figured I would try to have a conversation with him, and he was kind enough to accept. And so uh, here we are. And so hello, Sean, and thank you so much for coming. Hi, Tiago. Good to be here, and thank you for the invitation. Fantastic. And, and it's funny because I actually didn't, at the time, I didn't actually quite realize how big you were in the field. Um, like, obviously, I, I, I saw that you had a lot of research going on, uh, but I didn't quite understand how, how, how leading you were in some ways. And it's it's funny because I actually have um, uh, the textbook of Fourier, of Fourier Cognitive Science, uh, the I think Cambridge one I think I think the yeah, handbook, uh, the Oxford yeah it's the Oxford, yeah, the Oxford yeah, handbook Oxford, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, which I'm still yeah I'm still struggling it's, to finish it's, it's 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 a large book yeah <laughs> yeah it's a beast but I yeah. just I just realized now that you are like one one a a contributor or or editor right yeah I'm uh, an editor on that that's right cool um, I I just found it funny that that I've been kind of. <laughs> <laughs> having this schedule, I didn't even notice. So um, maybe let's start with, I would like to start about like a short introduction of you as a scholar, an academic, and like a, a personal view of how did you come into philosophy? Like how did you s- decide to study it? What was kind of like your influence and, and why did you get in, into this into this subject mm-hmm. rather than anything else? Sure. Yeah, well, I, st- I studied it in undergraduate uh, 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 university and fell in love with it uh, and uh, basically decided that's that's what I wanted to do, spend my time reading philosophy and, and thinking about things like that. So um, I, I was especially influenced by uh, a course I took on existentialism. Um, so we were reading people like Camus and uh, Sartre. Uh, and I wanted to know where did all of this existentialism come from, how, how to understand it in the context of the whole history of philosophy. Uh, and that led me back, of course, to phenomenology and to the work of Husserl and Heidegger, Merleau-Ponty, and, and so forth. Uh, so when I went to grad, grad school, I, I really focused on phenomenology. So I would say my, my graduate training is primarily in phenomenology. Um, and I was, uh, of all those classic authors, I was most influenced by Merleau-Ponty, reading uh, his work, um, which turns out to be uh, his early work is very interdisciplinary and um, takes you to considerations about neurology, uh, psychology, developmental psychology, and so forth, all of which he was reading and uh, uh, contributing to, a, a, you know, in, in terms of his philosophical and phenomenological considerations. Um, so 
I started to look then at some of the more contemporary neuroscience um, and psychology, and I tried to sort of up, you might say, update in my graduate work. I tried to sort of update um, Merleau-Ponty's uh, work, and uh, that ultimately led me to the cognitive sciences, um, which uh, took me a while to figure out what the cognitive sciences were all about. But I thought then that phenomenology might be able to contribute something uh, to, to the cognitive sciences. And so that that's, that's a project I took on. Uh, so that was one thing. Um, I was, you know, just about the time I was, you know, discovering that that as a project, I, I was just finishing up another project, which was on hermeneutics. Uh, so I, uh, I published a book on hermeneutics and education, uh, but since the time uh, of that uh, publication, that was in 1991, uh, I was at that point heavily involved uh, meeting all kinds of wonderful uh, people uh, in psychology, developmental psychology, neuroscience, uh, and being able to interact with them. Uh, I was kind of re-educated, so to speak, um, in, uh, in the cognitive sciences and uh, that's been my focus ever since. Mm -hmm. And so w when was roughly the period when he starts getting into cognitive science? Really, it was in the early 90s. So mm -hmm. one, one thing that sort of brought me there was uh, an invitation to uh, a, a week-long workshop at King's College, uh, Cambridge in the UK. Uh, a psychologist named Tony Marcel had read some of my articles and thought it would be nice to have me in this workshop. And I met there, not only Tony, Tony but uh, Jonathan Cole, who was uh, doing neurophysiology, uh, Andrew Meltzoff, um, well, just and all kinds of other people, uh, philosophers, mainly analytic philosophers. So I felt like I was the token phenomenologist and suddenly I saw that this type of setting would be a, very likely the type of setting that Merleau-Ponty would, would turn up at if he had been alive uh, at that point. Um, so I, I really felt at home suddenly and uh, uh, started to read uh, the analytic philosophy at that point uh, and into the more, more deeply into the sciences. And so I would say the early... 90s would be um, the time I really got into that. Cool. Um, and I actually didn't know that, that Ponty was actually that interdisciplinary. That, that, that's something that, the, that I really I really respect. Um, and I think that that's truly where the gold nuggets of, of wisdom and knowledge are, even though it's always so tricky because I feel that's, that's truly where the value of most things are, but it's so difficult to achieve because the more you branch out, the less of an expert you are on anything. And so I see when a lot of people try to do that, um, you know, it's a lot more easy to oversimplify things. Um, mm -hmm. And it's just very tricky, but obviously mm -hmm. uh, pointy and, and, and others like you are, are, are very smart. So um, <laughs> well, I it's, think it's, very, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's I think very lucky too. So I've, I mean, uh, in in those days, I, I talked to phenomenologists, um, uh, some of them uh, who had 
tried to do this, but met with resistance, um, trying to talk to psychologists saying, well, we don't really need philosophy here. Uh, and uh, so they, uh, they didn't always succeed. Uh, I think for in, in, uh, in my, uh, you know, attempt to, to enter into discussion with psychologists, I, I've just been very lucky to find uh, the ones who are open to talking with philosophers, and uh, they they really helped me. I think and, and in terms of uh, some co-authoring and great discussions and and so forth. So I've been lucky. Yeah. I, th I think you. I think also the fact that you're in cognitive science. I think that helps a lot because it has such a such a philosophical roots. But for example, I'm in a similar. Um, I have a similar problem sometimes uh, when I'm kind of like in the philosophy uh, and then on the neuroscience camps. They really don't like to talk with each other. Uh, the philosophy is like, well, neuroscience tells almost nothing about the true nature of the mind. And then the neuroscience, well, it's like philosophy is completely useless. Like we, as long as we can scan people's brains, then we'll figure it out. Uh, yeah. It's a very tough conversation. But I think cognitive science is... You know, the, the, precisely the reason why it attracts me so much is because it's very friendly to to all these fields and even more like anthropology, you know, artificial sure. intelligence. Yeah. Meant um, to be a, meant to be an interdisciplinary project, really, not not just a branch of one other science like psychology. A lot of a lot of times, uh, psychologists would think that oh, cognitive science is like a branch of psychology, but that, that's the wrong way to think of it. I think. Um, I think cognitive science is just this interdisciplinary project that draws on psychology and anthropology and artificial intelligence and, and, and so forth. So philosophy included. Right. Um, so I'd like to get into, into phenomenology um, a little bit. And oh, it's, it's funny because in some sense, it's almost as if it's like one of the most basic aspects of philosophy because it's kind of like what you have with you all the time which is experience but at the same time i think because of like you know the enlightenment's uh, rationalism like the, the over scientific worldview uh, we kind of have like the idea itself almost seems absurd at times uh, especially if you have a scientific education and so th there's this funny paradox when it's it's something so close uh, to humanity, let's say, to philosophy. Uh, but, you know, a lot of times also people have a, a tough time grasping it within our, our current uh, culture. And it's also deceptively, it seems deceptively simple. Like, it, it's very easy to think that it's something very straightforward. So, for example, if I'm describing my experience, that I just, I just describe it. I just speak what, what comes to my mind. Um, and there's something to it, but it's, it's certainly a lot more complicated than that. And even though I've been heavily influenced by uh, phenomenology and, and reading some of, the, some of its authors, I never went super deep into it, especially the more academic sides. And so I actually don't know exactly how it's done and kind of like some of the common problems uh, that, that it's typically encountered. I know, I know they exist, I just don't have it very articulated in my mind. So maybe, maybe let's explore that a little bit. Like, what's, why is phenomenology more complex than it might appear? And, and some of the, the philosophical and scientific problem, sci scientific, that's, you kind of run into it. 
Sure. Um, it, it's, yeah, it's a great question. And uh, there's a, a lot of complexity about the answer to it uh, as well. Um, first of all, I mean, there's, there's a kind of distinction between phenomenology as a philosophical method developed by the classic phenomenologists, uh, people like Husserl. Um, and then in, in contrast to that, there's a lot of uh, discussion within cognitive science about phenomenology, uh, where phenomenology is just means experience, just, you know, the phenomenology, the experience that I have, the qualia that I experience and so forth. Um, so that's often referred to as phenomenology. And uh, in cognitive science, then, uh, when you say phenomenology, it doesn't always mean the kind of tradition of, of uh, the philosophical tradition uh, that follows Husserl. So uh, my own, you know, uh, focus has been coming from that philosophical tradition. Um, and, and then, uh, you know, once, once we get clear on that, another complexity is that well, there is no one theory of phenomenology, or there's no one uh, phenomenological approach that every that all of the classic authors somehow would agree on. So Husserl uh, can be contrasted with Heidegger uh, and contrasted with Sartre and uh, Merleau-Ponty, and almost any any time a, a person starts to to um, consider uh, phenomenology, they, they, they come at it perhaps from a different uh, starting point. Uh, so uh, a lot of times the phenomenological method is associated with Husserl's work, but that, does, that doesn't always flow nicely uh, into some of the other phenomenologists. So uh, the, the yeah, as you say, uh, it's not just a matter of, you know, trying to describe what you're experiencing. Uh, Husserl outlines a, a whole set of methods, uh, including what he calls the phenomenological reduction or the epoche. Um, and that is an attempt to, uh, to um, exclude uh, any kind of theoretical judgments, any... Uh, any biases, uh, trying to get, you know, he would describe it as something like a get to the pure experience uh, in order uh, to be able to deal with that. And then once you, once you start looking in, in, it, in that fashion, you start, to un, uh, you start to discover structures that you want to, to, to discuss. And, uh, and although Husserl, by doing this phenomenological reduction, this epoche, this bracketing out of theoretical considerations, um, trying to get to the pure experience, although he, he does that, he nonetheless, in, in the end, uh, comes back to some theoretical concepts. Uh, and uh, um, he doesn't, you know, as Merleau-Ponty puts it, the phenomenological reduction is always incomplete. That's <laughs> always something you have to keep keep renewing as you do your analysis, uh, but it's never something that, you know, gives you an absolute insight into experience. So the, the kind of classic authors have, themselves have different disagreements about how to do phenomenology. 
And then when you start to mix phenomenology with cognitive science and see how it can, uh, how it can contribute to or how it can learn from the empirical um, experimental work that's done in the different sciences, um, then it gets even, I think, more complicated. So there are some contemporary developments that, uh, that have been uh, worked out by people like um, Francisco Varela, uh, Evan Thompson, uh, and then some of, the, some of the, uh, their colleagues who, who focus on phenomenological interviews as using phenomenological interviews as part of the, uh, the method that can be combined with empirical study. Uh, so you get a very, uh, a real spectrum of conceptions of what phenomenology is, how it works, and uh, it's, it's not easy uh, to find uh, total agreement, even among the phenomenologists. So you mentioned kind of like that we can, I mean, obviously this is a spectrum, but if we're oversimplifying it a little bit, so we can kind of consider phenomenology with a philosophical uh, dimension and a kind of like a psychological, more empirical dimension. Uh, do you think that the psychological one uh, is just like one way that they're trying to kind of conceptualize and explore uh, qualia and that's what they should do? And that's kind of like a thing on its own right? Or do you think that they're kind of losing sight of the philosophical tradition and they should keep that tradition into account and have a more robust philosophical foundation rather than trying to be just simply very empirical about it. Okay, so um, the, that distinction between, say, the philosophical or what Husserl called the transcendental on the one side, and then what, what, he, what he called uh, phenomenological psychology on the other side, uh, which meets up with the empirical side of things. Um, that distinction is, uh, I think, one that is important, uh, especially uh, when people talk about naturalizing phenomenology, uh, where the idea is there, well, depending upon who you're talking to, what it means. But uh, for, from my perspective, I think it simply means trying to bring phenomenology uh, into, uh, into play when you're doing experimental work or when you're trying to, to work out um, theories of, uh, of cognition. Um, in any case, uh, it's not just about qualia in that respect. So phenomenological psychology, I think, inherits uh, some of the same issues and some of the same uh, types of topics that, that are to be considered. Uh, they inherit those from the transcendental side, from the philosophical side. So there's a connection, at least uh, if you read Husserl, that's the way he thinks of it. And I think also Merleau-Ponty uh, and uh, uh, a lot of phenomenologists will say, well, it's not just about qualia, the kind of bare you know, sensory experience of things. Um, it's about intentionality, which is a, a certain structure uh, of consciousness. Uh, it's, it's about temporality. It's about our experience of time and, and the way that our experience itself has a temporal structure. Uh, 
It's about embodiment. Uh, it's about, that is to say, how bodily processes contribute to cognition. Uh, it's about intersubjectivity, uh, along the same idea that intersubjective relationships uh, somehow or other contribute to um, cognitive processes. And uh, there's, there's a whole set of uh, uh, topics, I would say, uh, that uh, phenomenology points to that get carried over into their, the work that phen uh, psychology, uh, phenomenological psychology is supposed to be doing. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, again, I think the caricature of phenomenology is simply that, oh, well, it's something like introspection and you're looking to try to explain qualia. But that's, that's a very small part uh, of phenomenology and it's not so straightforward even in phenomenology that that's, what's, that's what you're doing. Right. Um, so something that I really like about phenomenology is that, at least to me, it's a really good example of the importance of philosophy to, to science, because, you know, a lot of people think that, you know, it's something very abstract that doesn't, you know, make a difference anywhere um, in, the, in the real world and in actual scientific progress. And to me, when phenomenology touches on cognitive science, uh, to me, that's the best example of why exactly that view is wrong, because so much progress has been made exactly by these types of deeper topics beyond just basic experience that you mentioned, like intentionality, embodiment, etc. Uh, I'm particularly impressed uh, by how these developments have led to different views on artificial intelligence, for example. Uh, for example, how kind of like viewing the mind as simply like a a, like a computational model of like symbols changing around and stuff like that. Uh, that's, that's a lot more complicated than that. Um, and I think the kind of the, the philosophy uh, is kind of what's brought that into the spotlight. And then psychology and cognitive science is kind of, and we're, we're kind of like forced to, to change how, how they thought uh, about cognition. Um, but because you're so much more experienced and knowledgeable than me, I, I'd like to hear your take on how exactly uh, do you think is the best example of philosophy informing uh, science? And you can, you can kind of like specify it more mm. towards cognitive yeah. science. Oh, that's really difficult uh, to, to say. Here's the one, here's the one example. Okay, just a good one. So it doesn't have to be uh, the highest. Sure. Well, you, uh, you mentioned, uh, of course, uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, you know, the work of Dreyfus, uh, who was very much inspired by his reading of Heidegger and uh, Merleau-Ponty, especially. He, he didn't like Husserl as much, but uh, Merleau-Ponty uh, especially and Heidegger um, gave him great inspiration. Uh, and, his, you know, uh, his critique of artificial intelligence back in the 1970s was in some way... Uh, the first kind of major foray into uh, cognitive science, you know, bringing phenomenology into cognitive science. And, but it was a very critical negative way of doing it. Uh, he was saying, this is what computers cannot do. This is what artificial intelligence cannot do. Um, yeah. Yeah. What, what computers can't do. Uh, uh, and he, he did a second edition later, uh, what computers still can't do and so forth. 
artificial intelligence is getting very sophisticated these days. Uh, it's not quite clear that all of his arguments would still hold up. But nonetheless, um, he was drawing on uh, issues having to do with uh, embodiment, especially, uh, and very pragmatic uh you know, body environmental relationships that seemed uh, quite beyond uh, the the kind of good old fashioned artificial intelligence approach. Um, so I think he he had some influence, uh, despite the fact that not, not a lot of people liked this critique. Uh, you know, from the AI perspective, they they didn't like it, but uh, and and a lot of the work and a lot of the funding kept going on that same track. Uh, but nonetheless, I think some people uh, like Rodney Brooks, uh, you know, the kind of robotics that he he uh, started to conceive of uh, was very much influenced. Uh, uh, he even mentions Heidegger <laughs> at some point, but uh, uh, I think very much influenced by uh, someone like Dreyfus. Um, that I think that's early work and uh, in some way uh, uh, critical of cognitive science. And I think... Then with someone like Francisco Varela, who was a scientist himself, a neurobiologist, biologist, he uh, came under the influence of phenomenology uh, as, as well as other things uh, like Buddhism and so forth. Um, and he, to me, he, he brought us into a kind of more positive relationship. Um, you know, what can phenomenology actually do? What can it contribute to? Uh, to our, our conceptions of, of cognition. And uh, yeah, so his neurophenomenology project, uh, I thought was also another kind of important uh, milestone in, in this whole development. Awesome. And th that was a really good, a really good contrast between uh, Dreyfus and, and Kenneth Varela. Uh, like it's now it's, I didn't even think about it before, but now it's, you know, very, very clear in my mind how he, he in the beginning was more kind of like oppositional. It's kind of like you're a bunch of idiots. Like you're not really seeing this problem correctly. While Varela was like really trying to bring everything together, which, yeah. which is a lot, a lot productive. So you mentioned when you were, when you were kind of giving a little introduction of yourself that you were kind of, that you were inspired by like, uh, ex existentialism and, and you were very attracted to those things. But then, uh, when I see you mention, uh, phenomenology, I get the impression that you're more influenced by uh, Ponty, for example. And I have the, the impression that I have, and I haven't studied, studied them very well, um, is that Ponty, for example, was very, very um, worried about um, you know no, notions of, of, for example, embodiment and stuff like that, but also perception. And to me, he strikes me more as a revolutionary psychologist rather than um, rather than an existentialist for example and people like Heidegger at least to me that that's really where kind of like the peak of of existentialism and, and phenomenology meet so um, so let me kind of clarify that a little bit if 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 existentialism is still a big interest of you and so how exactly people like Ponty fit into yeah. That, that also is a very complicated question uh, uh, or requires a complicated answer. Uh, so, of course, 
a lot of people point to Heidegger and say there's sort of the, the, the center of the whole existentialist project. Uh, and yet Heidegger himself uh, indicated that he was not an existentialist. He was much more interested in ontology or question of being and so forth. Um, and his analysis, uh, which focused on human existence, uh, was only for, for, in his perspective, only for purposes of trying to get at the, the bigger question of being. Um, uh, so a lot of people then think that uh, Jean-Paul Sartre is, is the real existentialist, um, and he, he defends existentialism, um, uh, in fact, you know, uh, as, as a kind of, he says, as a kind of humanism where human existence is sort of central. Uh, Merleau-Ponty, I think, is uh, more complicated, um, but let me, let me say that Merleau-Ponty is not the only existentialist. Uh, sometimes he's, you know, he's considered an existentialist, he's friends with Sartre and Camus and all that, uh, and sometimes he's considered a phenomenologist, and um, what you find in Merleau-Ponty is this kind of interdisciplinary idea of, you know, consulting the, the sciences like uh, neurology and uh, psychology. Uh, but you find that also in Sartre, especially the early Sartre in the 1930s when he's writing about the imagination. He's looking at the empirical literature. He's, he's doing a, a broad review of the psychology. Uh, it's it's uh, sort of usually... Existentialism is, you know, for, uh, for Sartre is, you know, being in nothingness, which comes a little bit later. Um, I would say, you know, I, you know, I'm still, I find it still fascinating uh, to to read the existentialists, um, and there's something about this which turns up in very recent work um, in in a philosophy of psychiatry, for example, where uh, people start to talk about a certain existential dimension that has to be considered when thinking about uh, how to understand a psychopathology, uh, where the existential dimension is uh, you know, considered to be the, the idea that uh, a person has a kind of self-reflective awareness of themselves and that that can be uh, part of what contributes to anxiety, part of what contributes or, or uh, a possible way to get at uh, uh, the right kind of therapy for that patient and so forth. So uh, a good example of this is Sanaka Dahan's recent work on inactive psychiatry where uh, she, she takes the, the kind of a very broad approach that includes the um, cycle, psychosocial type of uh, uh, view, but also adds the existentialist perspective. Um, that's not, I think, mainstream you know, existentialism of the sort that Jean-Paul Sartre was doing, but it's, it's nonetheless something that I think can, can be uh, linked to that whole phenomenological existentialist connection. Uh, and it, 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 I think it becomes a very important point uh, when, you, when you start thinking about something like psychopathology. So I think there's still, um, it's there as a kind of rich resource that one can draw on in the right, in, you know, at the right point when one's trying to um, 
understand various aspects of cognition or when cognition goes wrong and uh, uh, what it what what it's supposed to be like and and also leading perhaps even into ethical considerations. Awesome, that that, that was um, very well put. And since you mentioned psychos psychopathology, I know you've done some some work on it. Then maybe let's try to connect that to to cognitive to the cognitive science. So, um, what can cognitive science, especially its more recent kind of branches and approaches so, so for example the idea of embodiment uh how can that tell us anything about psychopathology yeah well i mean if you, if you think of psychopathology as you know what can go wrong <laughs> with cognitive systems um, then i think there's a, a direct connection uh, to be made and to be explored so um one, you know, one has to look at the cognitive system as, as including the brain, the body, the environment. Uh, one has to, to think that something can go wrong with uh, brain processes that, that could lead to psychopathology, right? That's the typical way of thinking of it. One can also think that there might be some kind of Problem, embodied problem that, that could lead uh, also to, to problems. Uh, and one can also think of that the environment uh, could, could also contribute to uh, the, uh, the type of psychopathology. Uh, and, and the environment meaning not just the physical environment, but also the social environment. So if you think of the system in that way, um, you you can you can start asking broader questions, not not simply you know what are the neural processes that have been disrupted in in schizophrenia, but you can ask you know what what is bodily experience like, and what if you change the environment? Would that help this patient? Uh, if if you if you and and people do this in terms of things like. Uh, movement therapy, dance therapy, you know, what if you change bodily uh, processes, um, even, even sensory motor processes in a way, would that somehow rather address some of the symptoms in psychopathology? Um, so it's not just, you know, I think the, in other words, the, the focus on embodiment uh, and, you know, extended cognition and things like that offer uh, that, that focus offers um, alternative types of therapy. So it doesn't simply have to be medication directed at neural processes. It can be uh, therapy directed at bodily processes, at environmental arrangements. Uh, and and uh, I think that yeah, opens up a kind of uh, set of I call them therapeutic affordances that uh, allow us to uh, allow the therapist, for, uh, for example, to take a, a number of different um, approaches to treating a patient where it might be partially medication, but it might also be partially um, a kind of movement uh, therapy or a change of environment and, and so forth. In fact, a lot of, uh, there's been a lot of research uh, going on now using virtual 
reality environments uh, or simulations uh, to to address uh, some serious uh, psychopathological uh, conditions, and uh, that that means that you're you're basically changing the environment uh, and seeing how that might affect. Um, or you're using the environment in some way to to understand what's going on in the psychopathological process. Uh, so there's been a lot of work at the University of London, for example, uh, on this, but other places as well. That's very interesting about um, about virtual reality. I, I wasn't aware of that. Can you give like maybe a specific example of, for example, a specific pathology of of, of you know a, stu- a study that comes to mind where they're trying to. Uh, you know, to treat or to, or to help that condition, and, and why exactly does it work? Yeah, well, it's there's a yeah a number of of uh, things. So for a long, for a good while, I think uh, I think it's uh, Giuseppe Riva in um, in Italy has been doing experiments using virtual reality, looking at anorexia, uh, anorexia nervosa, um, so body image problems uh, and and uh, manipulating, for example, the, uh, the experience of the body and the environment as a way uh, that one could perhaps treat uh, anorexia. At the University of London, uh, people are working on schizophrenia. So uh, they're looking at um, putting a, a patient in a particular uh, setting, uh, where they, you know, the patient can sort of safely explore their feelings about what's going on. So um, if, if you are a paranoid schizophrenic, uh, riding a subway in, uh, in London uh, is a scary experience. Uh, but if you can safely uh, put you know, in a therapeutic context, um, put the uh, patient in, in, a, in a virtual subway, you know, and then kind of work with them in that context, uh, that, that can be productive. Um, there are also a very, uh, very clear applications for the treatment of phobias. So again, at the University of London, they've been doing some work there, looking at how you know, people who are uh, you know, an- anxious and uh, uh, suffering from phobias having to do with, I don't know what, uh, spiders or, or uh, marketplaces or, or what have you, they can put, put the patient in uh, a setting where they, f- they feel safe, virtu- a virtual reality setting, and then they can try to work through uh, the various uh, issues having to do with that phobia. So the, those are some of the applications. Uh, I, th- I think it's very interesting. Uh, you know, I have not myself worked with with virtual reality in precisely uh, that uh, area of research, but I have used virtual reality uh, along with uh, a, you know a team of researchers uh, to study uh, experiences uh, of awe and wonder during space flight, for example, uh, and uh, that's been. Wow, that's been really uh, exciting uh, for for me, and uh, it was, it's quite a, an enjoyable project to work on. Uh, so I, I, I'm I'm a big fan <laughs> of virtual reality. Awesome, that, that, that did make it a lot more clear in my mind how, how exactly 
um, that might work. Um, and I also did see a work of the of the all elements in kind of the, the space flights, and we'll, we'll get that in a second. That, that was also very very interesting. Um, but we've been talking about cognitive science, and, and we've kind of mentioned from time to time it's more like um, it's more recent uh, branches uh, related to embodiment and stuff like that. Uh, so maybe for people that are not familiar with it, let, let's try to get a base of, of what actually that means. Uh, so you're a great person uh, to ask. So so what exactly is uh, Fourier cognition? What, what's each E and what why? Why is it important and why does it differ from traditional cognitive science? Sure. Um, so the idea of four E's, uh, which is embodied, embedded, extended and inactive cognition um, is uh, is that I think if the 4E idea is, is an attempt to try to capture as much of the sort of embodied cognition uh, approaches as possible. And the, the first E embodied, uh, well, but that is the maybe the most general thing and, and in some way, it includes the other E's, uh, but uh, one can be very specific about how specifically, uh, yeah, how the body um, contributes to uh, cognition uh, in, just in terms of things like uh, sensory motor processes. So uh, looking at uh, uh, how movement through the environment uh, can uh, contribute to perception. There's a lot of experimental work that basically, you know, focuses on on movement uh, and uh, not just movement and uh, sensory motor processes, but also affective processes, so emotion, uh, which one can think of as a very embodied uh, set of processes. How emotion uh, will. Uh, perhaps bias perception or bias the way one thinks. There's one experiment I always like to uh, to point to by uh, a guy named Denziger who who looks at uh, trial judges and uh, and shows that the um, the judgment made uh, uh, about s- sentencing judgments made when the judge is hungry, uh, turn out to be stricter or, uh, yeah, uh, stricter than, uh, when, um, the, the judge is satiated. So just after, you know, the more in the beginning of the morning, um, the judge seems to be much more lenient as it gets towards lunchtime. Uh, the judge gets stricter in, in, uh, his or her rulings. And then after lunch, it goes back <laughs> back up to leniency. And there are you know, specific percentages uh, that are cited here. Uh, yeah, so affect taking in a very broad sense to include things like um, hunger or fatigue or um, uh, pain, uh, that, can, that can change the way you perceive the world, that can change the way uh, that you can judge uh, uh, how things ought to go. At, so forth and so on. So that would that would fall under kind of in, the first E embodiment. Um, the second is uh, extended, 
And uh, that basically uh, shifts the emphasis a little bit towards the environment. Uh, so a body is always in a particular environment and the environment uh, can in fact contribute to those processes that have an impact on cognition. Um, so uh, the, the tricky part here is to distinguish between embedded and uh, uh, extended because the extended cognition also emphasizes the environment. So examples uh, that I think, you know, uh, fall under the heading of embedded uh, would be things uh, uh, such as uh, the idea of affordances uh, developed by Gibson in ecological psychology. Um, and uh, that, that could work, but also we could think of distributed cognition, uh, the, you know, the way uh, we interact with a whole set of instruments uh, uh, in order to accomplish some task uh, uh, and, uh, and the importance of the interaction with, with the instruments for cognition. When you come to uh, extended uh, cognition, you, you find very similar claims, but the claims, uh, I think, simply get stronger. So whereas the embedded cognition of people who would, uh, would say, uh, well, there are causal relations uh, here. Uh, so certain things in the environment could, could cause us to think in a certain way. Uh, on the extended uh, notion of cognition, which is uh, very much associated now with Andy Clark, for example, um, the, the stronger claim is somehow or other that cognition is constituted by those, uh, the couplings between uh, uh, body and environment, between the cognitive, uh, the cognitive system includes uh, environmental uh, processes. So, the famous example uh, is uh, uh, Otto's notebook uh, in, in Andy Clark, and David Chalmers and Andy Clark's uh, essay on extended mind, uh, where Otto, of course, uh, has some problems with memory. He consults his notebook in order to try to remember things. And so his notebook is serving some of the same, pro same, same functions as uh, um, as biological memory. Uh, so it should be considered uh, part of the, of the cognitive system contributing to the cognitive processes and so forth. So the extended uh, uh, version uh, or the extended cognition approach uh, seems to uh, you know, make stronger claims about the very nature of cognition. And then finally, the inactive um, approach which, uh, you know, comes out of uh, the work by Francisco Varela, uh, Evan Thompson, and, and people like that. Um, they also think that the environment is important. They think that the body is important. And the contrast, let's say, between the extended mind and the inactive mind um, is uh, along the lines of how they treat the importance of the body, uh, first of all, uh, and, and that, for example, is uh, for the extended mind, they, they think of it in functionless terms so that it's true that the body plays a role, 
but it doesn't matter whether uh, the body we're talking about is uh, a human body or an animal body or a robot, as long as it, uh, as the, the functional details of the cognitive process uh, are the same, the actual physical instantiation of the process is not that important. Whereas on the inactive side, um, the inactivists would say it really cognition is uh, fundamentally biological in nature. Uh, and uh, f- they, they reject a kind of functionalism. They, they think that in fact, the details of human embodiment uh, uh, will will allow us to say something about human cognition, and human cognition is going to be very different from, you know, frog cognition or uh, or whatever, and a different um, environment, uh, a different you know what people some people call behavioral environment opens up for a human body in contrast to a uh, the the environment for the frog. Uh, so uh, they like to uh, to talk about the Umwelt, the you know von Uxpol's idea that uh, the uh, the the way we experience the world and our cognitive system uh, that's all relative to the kind of body that we have. Um, and specifically for the inactivists, um, the focus is on action. So it's it's a very pragmatic. Uh, this is why, in fact, it builds upon the phenomenologists. Uh, uh, for example, Heidegger, Heidegger's uh, notion of the ready to hand or zu handen height, uh, and Merleau-Ponty's notion of operative intentionality. Uh, it's a very embodied uh, and action-oriented type of analysis of cognition. You know, the way the cognitive system is uh, has evolved. Uh, is highly dependent upon both the evolution of the body and the pragmatic concerns that uh, different animals would have uh, for uh, survival. So, right, there's a, so there's again a spectrum of, uh, that sort of falls under the broad heading of embodied cognition. Uh, and uh, there, what you find are different emphases, some disagreements, some attempts to integrate some of these uh, ideas in the most recent work, people are trying to integrate and trying to find ways to, to make it a more coherent uh, and consistent story about, uh, about cognition. That was fantastic. Thank you. That, that was a really good description um, of each one. And, and I find it funny that you mentioned uh, the Jerry study, because that's also one of my favorite studies and something that's, something that really made me want to study philosophy and psychology was when I started to realize that, that cognition can so be easily misled, that, that you have this, you have this intuition that you easily make good decisions so that you understand the world. But a lot of times in these types of studies that show cognitive biases, uh, it's like, well, actually you don't. You, you make a lot of, a lot of errors. And to me, that was just like literally scary. It's like you're interpreting reality incorrectly. How, how is that? How is that not the most important thing ever? Uh, sure. And so that, that's something that's made me want to get into psychology and philosophy. And that, that's one of my favorite studies because 
first of all, the effect size, from what I remember, was, was pretty big. Like, it wasn't something insignificant. And it's something so basic. It's just like, you're just a tiny bit hungry. And, and it affects yeah, your, your entire right. judgment so much. And an important judgment at that. Yeah, the, I'm not sure how they were measuring it, but I think the effect size was something like 60 some percent uh, of a difference between early morning and just before lunch. <laughs> um, so that is significant. And there's a lot of, of really interesting, you know, studies about uh, juries and how they make decisions and how the introduction of some information early in the consideration process can simply change the way the jury goes uh, uh, as opposed to, you know, holding on to that information until later. And then of course, all the, all the research on memory, uh, Elizabeth Loftus uh, and her work, for example, that, you know, and, and just, you know, the words that say an attorney will choose uh, to, to ask a question can take, take the answer in a certain direction that they want. All very, very interesting stuff. Right. There's a lot of uh, similar parallels with research on, um, not exactly what the right term is, but like police officers, investigators, stuff like that, how they make judgments, uh, mm. how, how they cling to judgments based on just a tiny detail in the beginning. Um, and it, there's a heavy parallel and, and it's all very interesting. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned uh, Varela and Thompson, uh, which which I really like. Um, I tried to get Thompson, but unfortunately, he's, he's very busy. Um, and and Varela, unfortunately, has, has passed away. Mm-hmm. Um, but embodied cognitive science has been very um, associated with, with Buddhism. And I, I wonder if that's... I wonder if that's how cognitive science has developed based on kind of like our philosophical framework in the West, uh, based on a, like a more scientific worldview. And if embodied co- cognitive science was kind of like precisely what the West was missing, and that's why it has become such a, cru- a crucial issue. Or if maybe it was just like a coincidence that, for example, Varela was just really, really interested in Buddhism, for example. Um, what, what do you think? Is, is it something kind of inherent about how we were doing things in our culture, or it's just it's just a happy coincidence or something like that? Well, I think uh, definitely uh, cognitive science starts out very much uh, on in in sort of the Western, you know, influenced very highly by Western philosophy and psychology, um, and a lot of early cognitive science is. Cartesian, uh, people like Fodor and, uh, and all of that. Um, so I think if you look at, of course, you know, the Cartesian tradition, there's a downplaying uh, of the body. I mean, you could, you could claim that the whole Western tradition downplays the importance of the body. You know, it's all about reason. It's all about what the mind is doing uh, in the head and bodily processes are, are not thought to be important or they are thought to be things that we should suppress in some way. So you have that whole long tradition uh, in, in philosophy and, and it, it sort of carries over into psychology. Uh, and, and definitely the, in, in the origins of the cognitive science, um, that this is uh, also the case. And the, the computer 
the computational models, you know, fit in very nicely to that whole idea. So uh, embodied cognition um, is uh, definitely uh, an attempt to move away from, from that, the dominance of a kind of Cartesian perspective within, um, within philosophy, psychology, cognitive science, and so forth. Um, so he, uh, you know, someone like Varela uh, is very much aware of that. Uh, he finds uh, inspiration in people like Merleau-Ponty in phenomenology, but he also, uh, yes, finds a, um, a different tradition in Buddhist, uh, in the Buddhist psychology, uh, where it's a much more holistic uh, approach. Um, I, I don't think I can say too much about Buddhism myself. Uh, I, I haven't studied it enough. Uh, uh, to be able to say something intelligent here. But um, I think there are conceptions of a lot, a lot of the work that's been done now recently has, has been on sort of mindfulness and meditation practices. Um, and a lot, of the, a lot of that work has been inspired by uh, Varela and the Mind and Life Institute, which the Dalai Lama is part of and so forth. Um, where they actually study, uh, you know, from a neuroscience perspective, what's going on in the brain of the meditator, the long-term meditator. And uh, that's one approach. But Varela was more interested in the method that Buddhist um, approaches could offer. And he thought the method, the mindfulness, uh, can train the mind uh, so that uh, people who are trained in mindfulness can do can be sort of, in a sense, experts uh, at something like phenomenology uh, in order to not just report on their experience, but control their experience um, in a way that uh, people who are, are not uh, meditators uh, would have a hard time doing. So he thought that that could be, you know, could fit very well with his neurophenomenological approach. So there's a there's a, a couple of different things going on in in uh, in cognitive science having to do with uh, Buddhism, um, but uh, definitely uh, Varela was influenced by by that connection. You mentioned the the Dalai Lama, uh, and from, if my memory serves me right, you've also met him. Uh, was that also was that with Varela kind of parts with the, the the partnership that he had, or was that a, a separate? Uh, thing. Yeah, Varela and uh, the Dalai Lama uh, uh, formed an institute, let's say, where they agreed to meet uh, every year. Uh, the Dalai Lama was very interested in Western science and psychology, uh, and uh, Varela was interested in the, the Buddhist tradition. So they set up meetings every year. That became known as the Mind and Life Institute, which is now flourishing. And they would organize meetings after, even after uh, Francisco died. Uh, the meetings continued. So I think it was uh, maybe because of my association with uh, Francisco that I, I got invited uh, to go to one of these meetings. And the meetings would be between uh, scientists, uh, one or two philosophers, and the Dalai Lama meeting and having a dialogue for a week uh, together in Dharamsala. 
so I think that's uh, that's probably the connection. Evan Thompson, I think, was uh, arranging one of these meetings, and uh, so I got invited uh, that way. And there's a connection with Dan Sahavi as well, who also got invited, couldn't go, and I, I went also in his place, <laughs> so to speak. Um, and from that type of, of partnership, um, from my understanding, um, it's a very productive collaboration and it's, it's a very positive thing. Uh, but my, uh, the idea that I have is that underlying that, there is always a very relatively minor but significant kind of conflict of uh, overall worldview, which is kind of like the Western side is kind of like trying to take the, the Buddhist and Eastern perspective and kind of incorporate it with cognitive science. Uh, but it's like, well, the body is important and uh, like mindfulness is important for, you know, mental health and stuff like that. And, and there's also this like hyper, hyper skill of uh, introspection and stuff like that. And then the, the Eastern side is interested, you know, in, in the, in the, in the power and the discoveries that Western science have made. But I always have the, the, the sense that, um, one is always trying to convince the other of, metaf of metaphysical views. So, for example, the, the Dalai Lama, from my understanding, uh, is like, well, this is all wonderful neuroscience and whatever, but you can't fully reduce it to just, you know, chemical processes. You know, there, there's something that, that transcends, um, you know, your science, let's say. Mm. And then the Western side is kind of like the opposite. It's like, you have a bunch of cool stuff here. We'll love it. But like everything that you say about the minds being something other than material, that's completely wrong, basically. Uh, do, do you have, is, is my interpretation correct? And do you have like a view of, of this conflict and where you slide in? Yeah, well, uh, so I just, uh, I can report what the Dalai Lama said, uh, you know, at the meeting that I went to. And that is that uh, he's, he's uh, you know, if, so there's a whole tradition of Buddhist psychology. So uh, he says, if Western science uh, shows that this, this particular, you know, subject uh, uh, matter is, uh, it goes this way and it contradicts Buddhist psychology, he says, I'm very willing to change to give up the Buddhist psychology part and to go with the Western science. He, because he, he thinks Western science is, is good in that respect. Uh, however, he does say there's another level, right? You know, what you call the metaphysical or theological or whatever you want to call it, uh, that has to do with, you know, questions about reincarnation or, or those types of uh, religious um, uh, issues. And he says that science really doesn't, yeah, doesn't, is not able to tell us anything uh, about that. Uh, so he does make a distinction between, uh, you know, what science can tell us about and what it can't tell us about. Yeah, that's true. And uh, yeah, as, as Buddhism, you know, gets accepted in, into the Western uh, practices, I mean, it's not clear that, uh, you know, people accept it as a full package. I mean, there are people who are Buddhists, but there are a lot of people who don't consider themselves Buddhists, but they will do mindful, mindful uh, meditation or whatever. Uh, and that's, that's good enough for them. Yeah. So let's get finally into 
into your space study. I, I know you are proud of it. I also found it really interesting. So I'll, I'll let you be very broad. So let's first describe exactly what what were you trying to discover uh, and why you did it. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, so uh, at the time, uh, I was working at the University of Central Florida, which is the the closest un university to the Kennedy Space Center, where they you know, it would launch uh, rockets and, and such. And there was a lot of uh, research going on at the university uh, in engineering, computer science, um, directly you know, funded by and relevant to um, the space program. And uh, along with um, a couple of people there, I, I thought, well, I wonder if the humanities could get into this in some way. And uh, there was an, uh, a professor, uh, actually, he was just kind of a professor emeritus by the time I got there, I think. Uh, but he had collected, uh, he had interviewed a lot of astronauts about their experiences. And uh, he had a whole collection a kind of archive of these interviews, uh, which he shared with me. And I thought this would be interesting to explore in a, a scientific way, rather than just you know, having interviews. Uh, it would be interesting to try to do a study uh, of, of, uh, of this kind of experience. And what they described in the interviews uh, were experience, uh, uh, experiences uh, of awe, wonder, you know, they were overwhelmed by what they were seeing, uh, you know, from, uh, uh, from the space station or from the shuttle, looking out the window at the earth, you know, uh, they, were, they were, you know, describing all kinds of experiences. So we wanted to um, catalog those experiences and, and then try to do some kind of uh, experiment. Um, so that's what we set out to do. We got some funding and we set up um, experiments uh, using virtual reality. So a virtual simulation of a space flight. Uh, and we had a hundred and I think 104 subjects um, who, who went into the simulation. And then we did follow up phenomenological interviews, but this was also a neuro phenomenological study very much in line with Francisco Varela's uh, idea of neurophenomenology. So as the subjects were experiencing uh, in the virtual reality, experiencing this, their space flight, let's say, the, um, uh, we had them hooked up to EEG, FNIR, um, uh, heart monitoring, uh, we, so we were looking at what's going on in the brain, what's, what's going on in the body. Uh, and of course, then we wanted their descriptions uh, of, the, of their experience. And then the whole big task was to try to correlate all of this data. Um, the, the, the first person phenomenological data, the third person uh, neuroscientific data. And then we also added um, a whole set of questionnaires at the end where uh, we were exploring uh, each individual subjects, um, you know, uh, kind of cognitive attitude towards the world, uh, their cultural practices, uh, religious practices, and things like that to see if any of that kind of background uh, had any kind of impact on what 
what they were experiencing in the simulation. So we had a, <laughs> the big problem was we had too much data and we had to try to correlate it uh, as best we could. Uh, and we had to solve some problems and there were some, you know, limitations to this study, right? We, we were all located on the earth and nobody was experiencing, you know, zero gravity. Um, and uh, the subjects that we were, you know, uh, uh, our experimental subjects were uh, undergraduate, uh, main, un undergraduate uh, um, students mainly, and not the astronauts themselves. We did have one astronaut who was uh, an advisor on the project, um, so there were a lot of uh, a lot of limitations, um, a lot of issues to resolve. But nonetheless, we think uh, in the end that we were able to replicate. Uh, a whole set of, uh, we, we ended up with, I think, 34 different experiences uh, uh, or experiential categories that we were able to replicate through the use of the simulation. So that in the phenomenological interviews, our, our subjects were reporting the same kinds of experiences as you found in the journals and interviews with the astronauts. So we, we thought we, we did a good job in that respect. Uh, so I think I, I, we, this is all published in a few articles, but also in a, in a book in 2015, uh, which is called The Neurophenomenology of Awe and Wonder. Uh, and I think uh, for us, it was a very exciting project. It, it, in a certain way, showed how neurophenomenology could be used um, and uh, that it can get us to real empirical um, results. I was very impressed uh, by the study, and it was very interesting. And I really liked how it was set up. Like, uh, like for example, when you, 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 you made sure, for example, to, to, to not be misled by your prior conception of what these experiences are. So I like that, for example, you did the thematic analysis of the actual uh, the descriptions of the astronauts that went there. Um, and like, to me, that, that was great. Like a, a lot of studies don't do that. They just, they just assume that they know what they're looking for. Uh, and then they kind of study that. Yeah. Um, and, and if I remember correctly, there, there was actually a discrepancy there, right? Because if you went, uh, purely, for example, on the on kind of like the the, the earthly writings of the astronauts that actually had a difference than what they actually wrote at the moment, right? And I, I'm not sure if I remember if you offer an explanation of of why there was that discrepancy. Yeah, so um, I, there were definitely different sources that we used. Some of the uh, sources, uh, I think, the most important ones for us were the journals that the astronauts kept. Uh, during their their space flight, uh, and then there were others that uh, were simply follow up interviews uh, in various contexts uh, uh, that had been published or uh, or at least collected. Um, I don't know that there was a huge difference in terms of the the actual things that they described. I don't recall that there was any kind of Serious difference in terms uh, of the way they I, would. 
I think I think he, if I remember correctly, it was more in terms of um, abstraction. Like I think the if I remember correctly, it was more abstract the longer mm-hmm. it went. Yeah. But but then uh, something that also made me more curious about it, if I remember correctly, I might be misremembering, is it was less coherent as well. I'm not sure if that's just an effect of memory over time because you reconstruct it every time you narrate it, or if there's something else going on. Yeah, so that, okay, now I know what you mean. Uh, so one thing we did when we got all the, got all the text together and, and we did a syntactical analysis, a computer-generated syntactical analysis uh, of it, uh, and those types of process, those types of differences did show up in the sense that, well, yeah, uh, they were less concrete in in terms of their uh, descriptions. Um, but it wasn't that they were somehow or other contradicting, you know, the the journals. Uh, it's just that uh, there was a kind of level of abstraction uh, in you know, that sort of showed up in the syntactical analysis of, of the actual sentences that they were using. Um, so we, we were looking there, you know, what we were looking at there ultimately was not so much uh, to try to discover those kinds of differences between the interviews and the journal keeping um, during spaceflight, uh, what we were looking for, and the reason we did it was we compared the descriptions of those all experiences to descriptions of other kind of pragmatic uh, uh, pragmatic uh, tasks that they were conducting during the space flight to see if there was some some you know significant uh, uh, significant uh, findings that we could say when they are when they are describing awe and wonder, <laughs> it sort of goes this way uh, syntactically uh, in terms of abstraction or concrete uh, use of certain words and so forth. Um, but uh, and I don't know that 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 really gave us as much as all uh, uh, as say the phenomenological interviews. Um, and comparing the phenomenological interviews with with just all the astronaut uh, descriptions. Something else that was very interesting to me was that um, they seem to have these experiences uh, after doing kind of like mundane, maybe repetitive tasks that they were like they were kind of involved in their work, and there was this like glimpse, this this like window of time where they look out of the window and then they have this. Or uh, experience, and uh, did you try to kind of understand why that is? I, I, I wonder if the, if it's I wonder if it's precisely the fact that they were so absorbed in work that then the contrast of this beauty and mm. awe that kind of made that experience happen, or, or do you think there, there's something yeah. else going on? Yeah, I don't think we tried to get at that uh, precisely. I mean. One thing that we were concerned about uh, was, you know, the very different environment that they are in uh, when they are in the space shuttle or the the International Space Station. Um, in terms of gravity, you know, zero gravity, 
Uh, and what we were trying to, you know, um, determine was whether, uh, was it the whole sort of experience, uh, you know, which is you know, very, very different from being on earth and so forth that generated these kinds of experiences of awe, or was it specifically the visual experience and almost just every, every case that we looked at, it was them looking out the window seeing the earth from a certain perspective, seeing the rest of the universe and so forth. Uh, so that we, uh, we could really say that it was the visual uh, um, stimuli that, that generated these types of uh, experiences. I think it's a good question that you're asking, but we didn't explore that. And I suppose we could have tried to, you know, give some busy work, uh, to a set of subjects and then have them, you know, enter the simulation. But uh, we didn't actually try to do that. But, you know, I don't know if the contrast was, was the main thing or just being able to look and see the earth from a certain perspective. Um, so another thing that I found interesting about the study is that so you, you had all these these categories, and, and some of them translated from the actual experience to, to the experiment, and some didn't. And I remember that there was a there was a per- perspectival shift that you managed to achieve, but then there there was you couldn't, if I remember correctly, correct me if I'm wrong. There wasn't like this f- feeling of unity that that the astronauts have, and I found that very weird because in my mind, how I had conceptualized the experience is that one causes the other. Do you think that's not the case? Yeah, well, it was, it's so in um, one thing to say, first of all, is that not every astronaut who went into space had these experiences. Uh, and astronauts who had these experiences, they didn't experience the whole range of the 34 categories that you know, we, we, we found across all the different reports. So not everybody experienced everything, and it was exactly the same uh, in our subjects. Not every subject experienced awe and wonder uh, or any aspect of it. Uh, those who did, they didn't experience every all of these categories, but rather the, you know, taking all of the reports or the interviews together, we found that in some, some cases more than others, uh, people experience these these different categories of experience. So very few people might have experienced this kind of feeling of unity. Um, but uh, many uh, many of our subjects experienced what we called scale effects. You know, the idea of feeling very small compared to the the hugeness of the universe and that type of thing. Um, and uh, that was the percentages were. Uh, were even greater in our subjects than were in the astronauts themselves uh, in, in that respect. Yeah, so uh, we didn't try, you know, we, we thought about how these different things were associated with one another in terms of whether they fit the broader category of awe, which was a kind of immediate type of experience, as opposed to wonder, which was something more reflective, uh, which, uh, which could challenge your, 
you know, your cognitive framework of how you understood the universe, but that was a much more slower reflective type of process as opposed to a, a, an immediate sense of something amazingly, you know, different about what you were seeing and experiencing. Um, so I don't know if that really answers your question. It does, it does. It, it makes great sense. And, and actually, uh, I think my point can be more or less easily undermined by exactly what you said, that not every astronaut has, you know, has these different levels of experience occur. So if they were, if they were causal to the degree that I was thinking, uh, that, that wouldn't even make sense in yeah. the first place. I, I just didn't think of it. Um, so something that makes me very interested in, in these types of experiences is because also, I'm very interested in, in psychedelics and in mystical experiences. Uh, either in your own work or other work that you've read, um, have you tried or other people have tried to, to make a connection between these two types of experiences? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of work now going on with psychedelics, especially in, in uh, psychiatry. Uh, and uh, it's a relatively new emphasis, I think, in research. Um, I've talked to some of those people, but uh, I'm, you know, I don't really, uh, I can't really say very much uh, uh, about, I haven't really read through uh, their, their experiments or what they're finding uh, very much. Um, the mystical, uh, so one, uh, so I should say that, you know, the, the whole study that we did of, of, of space experience uh, there was a whole team of people, so psychologists, uh, neuroscientists, engineers, to, you know, that put together the simulation. Um, and uh, another philosopher, uh, Bruce Jantz, who uh, was, is very familiar with and has studied mysticism, you know, the whole tradition of Western mysticism. Uh, so... Um, one thing, you know, one, I think, very interesting thing that we kind of discovered late in the game in the sense that we were doing this analysis of what we had, and then we kind of were, were running into uh, something that wasn't quite captured by the 34 categories that we had, you know, drawn from um, the work of the astronauts. And that is uh, simply the sometimes the ineffability, the uh, inability to sort of put it into a category uh, or use a concept. And we found uh, in the interviews a lot, which we taped and so forth, a lot of, uh, you know, in the textual transcriptions, a lot of the ellipses uh, where, where basically people were struggling to find the right words and weren't able to. Um, and then kind of settled on something, uh, which the, which turns out not to be as, uh, you know, as uh, immediate uh, uh, as what they had experienced and so forth. Uh, so there was something uh, there, which uh, from Bruce's uh, perspective, uh, touched on the kind of mystical, a kind of mystical experience. Uh, I'm not familiar, as familiar with that tradition as Bruce is. So uh, he, his analysis, I thought, was very important in that respect. Did, did he happen, for example, uh, uh, in, in these types of, of studies, 
um, there's usually, I, I can't name the, the name of it from the top of my head, but there, there's kind of like a, a scale of a mystical experience that's kind of the standard in research. Uh, and I think it's very interesting to see the correlations of that scale with the work that you've done. And because you've taped the interviews, that's actually great because you can always run whatever kind of analysis uh, you want yeah. later. And my, my prediction is that they would, they would be fairly similar because at least how I conceptualize those experiences is, is precisely almost like a weaker form of a mystical experience. Mm-hmm. And the mystical experience also has this, uh, this variation and this, this, this fragmented nature that these experiences have as well. So not everyone has the same experience. Uh, some people have more oneness. Some people have the more ineffability depending in terms of the questionnaire, for example. Um, some people also not don't get anything at all, even though they're being given drugs that literally make it. Um, and so it has a, a lot of parallels, and I think it's kind of touching the underlying same thing. Um, and and awe seems seems a bit um, kind of underlying the mm. whole thing. I, I, I think it's very interesting. And if you haven't looked too much into the psychedelic uh, research. Um, I, I think you would find that very interesting because I think it's I think it's the same thing for us. No, that sounds very uh, uh, promising to to look in those directions. We wanted to do other studies um, uh, of different types of uh, experiences of all, uh, but it's just a matter of getting the funding <laughs> to do such things. Uh, yeah, funding is always <laughs> is always the biggest problem in these mm. things. Um, so I know this is a very complex topic and maybe it's a bit too much to chew on with the time we have left. Um, but I haven't had the pleasure to read it, uh, your book, Action and Interaction, just because I'm just insanely busy now, but it, it seems very, very interesting. Um, so maybe let's try to like pick just a few things so that people get a, get a taste of it. Um, so maybe let's try to give like an overall overview of what to try to do with the book um, and maybe let's try to get into action as a social phenomenon that that seemed a, a pretty yeah. big uh, part of it that seemed very interesting right. so yeah writing that book I, you know, I'm, I'm really coming at these topics from a, in an activist perspective right so I'm very much in that camp uh, the first part of the book is about action and uh, agency um, so I've, I've worked on this uh, uh, for, for a while, uh, especially with respect to the sense of agency, um, the phenomenology of agency, and uh, sometimes how it goes wrong in psychopathology. Um, but I, I, I wanted to uh, connect it with uh, the, you know, the a kind of analysis, a, a kind of action theory analysis of action. And uh, and uh, and and say something uh, specific that would would bring those kind of traditions, that kind of the phenomenology of action or agency, together with what had been had been some work uh, on notions of intention and uh, and action and action theory. Uh, so that's the first part of the book, but uh, ultimately it leads to, uh, especially the analysis of the sense of agency, it leads to the idea that social processes are very important um, for our sense of agency uh, as we act in the world. 
so that in the second part, I turn more towards those social processes and specifically uh, towards intersubjective in interaction. I take issue with sort of the standard cognitive science approaches having to do with things like theory theory and simulation theory, very much uh, focus that those, those approaches are very much focused on the individual mechanisms within the individual brain that are responsible for social cognition. Uh, so theory of mind modules or mirror neurons or what have you. And the argument there is again, something I've worked on, uh, which uh, is, you know, what has now uh, come to be called interaction theory. And the idea that our interactions, our bodily interactions within certain pragmatic environments do a lot of the work when it comes to our ability to understand the other person. It's not just a matter of me observing and inferring what's going on in the mind of the other, so-called mind reading, but it's rather engaging with uh, others in bodily uh, and pragmatic uh, contextualized um, activities that make a, a profound difference uh, in our understanding of them. So I, I try to work all the details of that. I talk about empathy. I talk about the direct perception of emotions and intentions. And uh, I talk a lot about the developmental psychology there, the work of uh, Colin Trevarthin, for example, and others. And then the third uh, the third part of the, uh, the book, the last, the final part of the book is about what, what, what are the implications of all of that, <laughs> that I've just gone through? What are the implications for our uh, social, uh, I, I would almost say political, social political uh, uh, understandings, uh, specifically about how we understand social institutions, uh, how recognition work. So I'm, I'm really working there in the uh, tradition of critical theory, uh, people like Axel Honneth's uh, analysis of uh, recognition, for example, that goes draws from Hegel. So it's a kind of social, political, critical theory uh, context in which I'm, I'm asking, what are the implications of all these findings in cognitive science, phenomenology, about interaction and so forth? What are the implications of that for some of the issues having to do with autonomy, recognition, justice? Uh, and that's the third part. So it's pretty broad, broad in terms of what I'm looking at. Uh, and it's a book I, some books come very quickly. I think, uh, you know, I have a book called Inactivist Investigations, which I think I, I wrote in about a year. This one took about 10 years. <laughs> Uh, you know, in between, I was writing other books, but, you know, it was a kind of a long, large project that finally came together in, in, the, in the action and interaction book. Right. That, that was great. I'm, I'm surprised how, how concise you managed to, to be. That, that, that sounds lovely. I, I hope I can have the time to, to dig more into the specific arguments uh, that, that you bring into it. And I remember seeing it somewhere. Um, that I'm, I'm guessing relates to this, that you have like a, a critique of, of Heidegger related to, to social uh, cognition. But I, I wasn't able to get the paper, but I know that you had some work on it. Can you 
Can you kind of laid out to the main arguments of that? Yeah. Okay. So this, I think, is at least among Heidegger uh, scholars, it, it's a, a controversial claim. Uh, but there are a number of people, uh, including someone like Gautamer, uh, Loeth, uh, people who knew Heidegger directly, who, who always were troubled by his analysis in being in time, for example, of Dasman, you know, the, the social other. Um, you know, very, very importantly, I think Heidegger says that uh, human existence is always always involves being with mitzain, he calls it being with uh, others. Uh, but then, when it comes to his precise analysis of how that works, what you find is that it's always uh, kind of framed within the set of pragmatic projects that uh, he describes. So we understand others and we encounter others because when we encounter the world, all of the various objects in the world, all of the instruments that we use have connections with, with other people. It's almost as if we encounter the other through our encounter with the pragmatic world. So although he emphasizes rightly, I think, the, the essential aspect of mitzain, of being with as part of the very structure of Dasein or human ex, ex, uh, existence, uh, he, as he carries out his analysis, it sort of turns out, it turns into this kind of uh, analysis that uh, from the uh, developmental uh, psychology uh, literature, one would call secondary intersubjectivity. Again, a very important aspect. But what, what I argue is that Heidegger misses what has been called primary intersubjectivity. And primary intersubjectivity is this face-to-face -face embodied encounter with the other that depends so much about bodily presence with the other um, and not so much directed towards what we're doing here in the pragmatic situation, but rather our kind of face-to-face -face relationship that has to do with emotional um, and understanding the other person as another person, I'll put it that way. And that, that's missing from Heidegger's actual analysis. Uh, I guess that's my, my criticism, that that should be there. Uh, that should be part of what he calls uh, the mid sign, and uh, he doesn't have it. Or at least that's my claim. <laughs> um, again, other people have said, well, you can dig it out somewhere or other, uh, but uh, uh, it's, it's clearly not central to his, uh, his analysis. And I think maybe part of the reason is that he doesn't, you know, in contrast to, say, Merleau-Ponty, he doesn't put a great amount of emphasis on embodiment. And it's, it's by looking at sort of the embodied processes that you, you come up with this primary intersubjective notion. That's, that's, that's very interesting. Um, although I think, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but the impression that I have of this very embodied face-to-face -face interaction and how that's, that, that, that frames how 
how he understands the other. From my understanding, that's a very recent literature, so certainly not from from Heidegger's time, where am I oh, correct? No. Well, that's true, except that there, there were, you know, there were uh, people working on empathy, for example, in the beginning of the 20th century, that, uh, so Theodore Leaps, uh, and, and then the phenomenologists uh, like Husserl and Edith Stein, um, and Max Scheler, uh, who all, I think, very much emphasized bodily processes in, in the whole analysis of empathy. Um, so there was that literature uh, that I think Heidegger was familiar with, um, but uh, he, you know, he, does, he doesn't think that we should equate uh, mitzvah or being with, uh, with empathy. So he kind of moved away from, from that kind of analysis. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Um, so we've covered a lot, and I think it's a, it's a good place to end. I don't want to steal too much of your time. Um, and I, I just really appreciate, like, uh, your work is fascinating. Your, your interests overlap a lot with mine. And this was great. I, I learned a lot. It was very enjoyable. Um, and I can't wait to dig more into your work. Thank you, Jago. And thanks for the invitation. It was, it was fun. Thank you so much. Have a great okay. day. Bye-bye.